Well, welcome everybody. This is going to be a mind-blowing episode. Oh my goodness, are you in free today? Uh, I believe if you have a lot of questions, they're going to be answered. It's going to fill in a lot of gaps for you. Uh, the military analyst will be joining in just a couple of minutes. So just give me a, a, a just a brief amount of time to share this show on a couple platforms here, so we can get a couple people in to join us. And should not be long at all. All right, there we go. Well, welcome everybody. Great to see you joining here. Uh, the military analyst Chris will be joining in just a few moments. I spoke to him right before coming on. He uh, he has some older equipment, so it uh, it maybe takes him a couple more minutes to get in. Hey, good to see you here, Rachel. Good to see you, Katie. Nice to see you. Welcome, everyone. This episode is going to be mind-blowing. I have read through the material. He's got the evidence to support it. Uh, it's already being posted. Uh, so <clears throat> if those of you who have joined the military uh, analyst intel group, uh, the, the thing is right up there right now with all the photos and everything, so you can follow along. Uh, it's... <laughs> Uh, and by the way, if you're if you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, on uh, I'm going to mention this a couple times today. Uh, listen, Chris uh, is a is a veteran. He's you know been retired, but they he's, the government, quite honestly, has been evil because he's a whistleblower and they've cut off some of his uh, pensions and things like that. Uh, you know, he's been having to be on the run. He's been in hiding. I'm on. Chris, welcome. I'm just giving you a quick intro, so just give me a second. Um, and so, one of the things that we've done here at Right on Radio uh, is I've on. We have a platform called Right on You. That's Right on with the letter U. Rightonyou.com. And on there, we've created a group where we're posting uh, a lot of Chris's compilations and essays, and it has all the figures in it. And these are massive documents, just so you know. Uh, they're massive. There's a lot of uh, things I, I could you couldn't post it onto like Telegram. It's way too big, uh, so we had to find a place to do it. And there is some costs associated with uh, with hosting and and some time to put it in. Uh, and by the way, there was a person who I have not contacted yet, but Jesse forwarded me an email of someone who's volunteering to help me convert all of these uh, essays into PDF so we could get them up faster and uh, and have more of them up there. Uh, there's probably 15 up there now, uh, including the one that we're going to discuss today has already been posted. Uh, and, you know, we're probably aiming at putting about 10 up a week uh, right now. So believe me, you won't be able to keep up with the intel if you're uh, – want to do it. So look, we, there's two ways to support uh, and the proceeds do will be forwarded to Chris. We're working on that right now. Um, so essentially the uh, there's two ways. There's a one-time fee, which is just $17. One time, that's it. Uh, or if you really want to support uh, Chris more on a long-term basis, uh, you can pay uh, $3 a month and that would be just like an ongoing uh, thing. 
of course, you know, you can jump out anytime, I guess, if you wanted to, but uh, I, I know that uh, he would certainly support, uh, appreciate the support. So listen, without further ado, he's risking his life to bring this intel to you, and this is going to be knock your socks off. Please like and share. Please share this show as we're getting going here, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this one, as I say, if you, if there's certain things that are happening in the world, and this essay, at least to me, answers some of the questions. If you're not understanding what's going on, uh, I believe today is going to provide some answers. It's going to be a bit of a long one. So without further ado, uh, his real name is not Chris Wilson, but we just call him the military analyst. And Chris, welcome back to Right on Radio. Thank you, Jeff. Um, For the audience, uh, this briefing is on uh, MI6, which is the British uh, external operations, uh, MI6 of Great Britain equals the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the CIA of the, um, of the United States. Their MI5 equals the FBI. So F- MI5 is internal, MI6 is external. And this is the MI6 Operation Tabberlin, uh, Britain's 1945 secret war in Antarctica. It's in three parts, and I think what I will do, even though I said otherwise, is that we'll do it for one hour because we'll never be able to cover it all. And I have another essay that goes with this, for the, and we'll do it on the second part. We'll see how we go. I'll get to probably uh, two chapters. Uh, what I printed out was uh, 72 pages, and um, that's, that's pretty extensive. Okay. What this oh, yeah. is about that, that, is that's, that's too much. We won't be able to get through that. You're right, Chris. So well, we trust on. your judgment, and we'll do a follow-up show for sure if we need to. Right. I I use 20 font instead of uh, 12 or 16 font, but um, the point is that um, I have another one that will coincide with this, and it has a lot of photos, and it shows that uh, what the audience is going to learn is that. Uh, there are several factors. Number one is that um, that Nazi Germany never lost World War II, even though we've been taught otherwise in history books and uh, throughout our lives. Uh, that is a falsehood. Hitler had sacrificed mainland Germany for the Fourth Reich's continuation. Uh, he relocated 100,000 senior officers to Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, Peru, and Brazil, predominantly Argentina. He established a breeding corps of uh, 25,000 blonde Aryan Caucasian young men and women between the ages of 17 to 24 from Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and uh, Belarus. And he used and transported them via his uh, U-boats, which were the most, uh, the latest version, which was the XX-1 and the XX-3. Uh, they were larger. And then he also had even larger transports for the equipment and uh, uh, weapon systems. And uh, <clears throat> Grand Admiral Donitz uh, was in charge of the Kriegsmarine, which was the Navy for, the, for Nazi Germany. And he and Admiral uh, Canaris, uh, they found the entrance beneath Antarctica to inner earth. This is not a joke, it is real. Uh, when the you get the, uh, these published, they're going to see an actual map from the 1938 to 1940 of the dimensions of how to go under the ice cap of Antarctica by uh, depth, uh, distance, and uh, 
it is absolutely factual. Okay, so um, then uh, he built uh, Base 211, uh, which is also known as New Berlin, that's N-E-U in German, uh, Berlin beneath the northeast sector of New Schwabiland, which he called, and it was formerly uh, uh, Norwegian Queen Maud's land in Antarctica. This is the northeast sector. Uh, he utilized two lesser caverns that were given to him by a malevolent reptilian fourth dimensional race. They're known as the Omega Ryans or Dracos. Uh, the reptilians gave Nazi Germany advanced electromagnetic EM propulsion systems, craft technology, implosive, uh, which is renewable energy versus our current explosive or expendable energy. Uh, genetic hybrid engineering, weapon systems, extended life genetics, plus other uh, numerous advanced sciences. So that's the background of what happened. And now I'll go into the story. But basically, this comes from one of the very few British survivors. There were only three that survived this mission. Uh, one was a historian, one was a scientist, and one was a survivor. And he contacted a, a, a renowned British journalist in the early 1980s via mutual contact. Uh, essentially, all special forces and all military are compelled to remain silent uh, as to their covert missions. That included him as well. Okay, here's how this goes. So the audience just needs to listen carefully. It's got a lot of material, but it's all factual. In 1938, Nazi Germany sent an expedition to Antarctica with a mission to investigate sites for a possible base to make formal claims in the name of the Third Reich. This went, uh, they had two missions, 1938 and 1939. This was to prepare them for their mission. They invited the great polar explorer, Admiral, U.S. Admiral Richard E. Byrd, to lecture them on what to expect. Admiral Byrd declined the offer instead. The following year, a month after hostilities had commenced in Europe, the Germans returned to New Swabiland to finish what they started, with many suggesting that a base was being constructed. I know for a fact that it exists, even today. Nine years later, Richard E. Byrd, whom by now had become an admiral in the United States Navy, was sent to Antarctica with the largest task force assembled for a polar mission. This was known as Operation High Jump. And that turned out to be an absolute disaster, just uh, giving the public a little background. Uh, I have a couple uh, videos on Admiral Byrd from that time period. And what happened was, they took a, a naval armada, which is 13 ships, an aircraft carrier, uh, battleship, two destroyers, uh, two escorts, fuel tender, uh, one to two submarines, and a uh, two frigates. The point is, they encountered, they, the mission was stated by the U.S. government and military that it was meant to go to Antarctica for natural resources to look for uranium. Well, that was a lie. And what it was, was to eliminate the um, Nazi base 211, which had already been built starting in uh, uh, 1939. And when they encountered them, I have some clips of it. Uh, and in that clip, you can actually see one of the German, uh, or two of them, in fact, uh, two German uh, UFOs, which were the, uh, uh, the Hanabu 2 and uh, Hanabu 1, attacking the armada two ships were sunk uh 59 uh sailors and 
uh, were killed and what was supposed to be a six to eight month exploration, which went from December 30th uh, and it was supposed to last all the way into uh, essentially the summertime. Uh, they returned in February and basically they, they, uh, it was a joint effort by the British, the Russian, uh, the Australians and uh, possibly Norwegian, but the first three are definitely confirmed. And they were so destroyed uh, by the, these, the German uh, electromagnetic crafts came out of the water. They came from beneath because their base is beneath the ice shelf and they can either leave from on top, which I've got pictures of where they, their entrances are uh, of two of them, and, or they can uh, leave from beneath the water. These came up out of the water and literally used their advanced technology and destroyed the Armada. The Armada packed up, went back, and Admiral Byrd was quoted by a Chilean newspaper journalist that uh, the world needs to be very uh, concerned as uh, uh, what they encountered. These crafts can go from pole to pole in no time at all. They're that fast. So... Going onward is that, um, and just to clarify, so we're talking flying saucers, everyone. Uh, th oh, this well, is real technology, this right? Is not but these, fake. right, and these are ours. These are German. These are the same ones. The yeah. German flew over the the uh, uh, the the Pentagon and the White House in 1952, and that was a warning to President Eisenhower. There was approximately 13 to 15 that flew over. And it was recorded. I have photos of it and possibly video. And that was to let uh, Eisenhower know that they can go from pole to pole in a matter of uh, just oh, virtually almost uh, no time at all. Uh, these their their crafts could uh, were built. Germany never stopped building their crafts. They escaped with the help of Great Britain and the United States. Yes, our evil government and military to Argentina. And they built crafts. They never stopped building their electromagnetic. The first one was built in 1922, and they were trying to create a time machine. And when they activated it, what happened was it neutralized gravity. So that was parked from 1922 until 1933, when Hitler took over with the Enabling Act and took over the Reichstag. Uh, then he started rearming Germany. And uh, you, since Germany has always been uh, excelling in advanced technology, and it is the scientific language, whereas French has always been the diplomatic language, that they um, essentially were able to develop, and they did actually work with the reptilians. I'll get into another one later. Uh, a, um, uh, William uh, Tompkins was a uh, the son of, an, of a CIA engineer in San Diego and his father would take him and show the ships in 1942 when he was a, a young teenager. However, you were never allowed to take any photographs because it was all classified, but the father had top secret clearance. Uh, what happened was the son went and uh, with his father looked over the aircraft carriers, the destroyers, the um, uh, battleships and uh, uh, frigates and he had a photographic memory. When he got home, he drew them to scale exactly. And what happened was uh, some senior naval officers, uh, captains and 
probably an admiral, came and visited the father. And when they saw his work on the table, they said, how could you possibly have, you know, taken that? That's top secret information. And the father explained his son had, you know, uh, was uh, very good in uh, graphics, uh, in art, uh, artistic, as well as a photographic memory. That is when he was hired by Admiral Borda in 1942 at age 16 to help the Navy. But it was, he was uh, hired to, after getting trained for a few months, to develop an off-world space fleet. He designed 32, and those were used since basically 1940 or 1942. I have two essays on it. It's part A and part B, or one and two, and I will share those with you. And you will see two of them, because I also have photographs of some of the crafts that he designed that are off-world, and they're basically outside our orbit, uh, our, outside of our exosphere in the atmosphere, and they were taken by a, uh, a balloon that was sent up, uh, which went all the way to the, the top of the exosphere and took photographs uh, while it was up there. And then the uh, balloon deflated and came back to Earth and the photographs were recovered. But they all match. And you also see what the real Elysium looks like. And that must be 10 to 15 miles across and it's about 15,000 miles uh, orbiting outside of uh, our planet. Okay, onward. Um, when we say Elysium, what, what is that, Chris? Um, speak louder, please. When you when you say Elysium, what is that? Okay. If you saw the movie with Matt Damon, Elysium was a spacecraft where it was a, a movie that was filmed where the, uh, the entire Earth was essentially destroyed and it was just for working class. But the elite, the ultra elite lived in a space station orbiting Earth. It's E L Y S I U M, I believe. Does that make sense now? Yeah, I don't. I, I just wasn't putting it together, so I wanted to make sure the audience was aware of that as well. Thank you for that explanation. That's fine. Okay, so onward. Um, with the the high jump, it was primarily a milit of a military nature. However, it was not advertised as that because the real mission was to take out. The, the Nazi base 211, which is new, Neu-Berlin, Berlin. And uh, uh, many claim that the task force was sent to eradicate a secret, uh, secret Nazi base in Queen Maudlin, which is correct, which the Nazis had renamed as New Schwabenland. Um, uh, however, it was never explored as profoundly as the rest of the Arctic in that area of the Northeast Squadron, where in 1938 to 39, the Germans went in and they... Uh, dropped uh, flags and uh, claimed the land in the name of uh, Germany uh, during that time period. And they covered approximately uh, 350 kilometers, square kilometers, a lot of land. Uh, but this land in the, in the Northeast Quadrant, I do have photographs of uh, uh, Admiral Byrd's photo when he took it. And you'll see that it is like Iceland. It has thermal geysers underneath. Iceland is not, I mean, uh, Antarctica is not all um, frozen over. The Northeast Quadrant has an area which actually has mountains, valleys, uh, no snow, uh, trees, uh, fauna, flora, uh, rivers, and it looks like someplace in, say, Scandinavia, okay? Um, and, and the water is swimmable temperatures, uh, seasonal, of course. Uh, but yeah, you can even swim up there for sure. 
And this is what happened is that when they aligned with the reptilians, when Hitler aligned, aligned with the reptilians, they were given two of the lesser size uh, caverns, whereas the uh, reptilians had the largest cavern. And they were given the technology uh, because uh, the reptilians, in wanting to essentially uh, dominate Earth and as they claimed it, uh, as their, their own territory, because the reptilian race, the majority of them, are pure evil, they're malevolent, and they go through uh, solar systems and, gal and galaxies, and they literally uh, take over and either enslave or eradicate the population of the, the local inhabitants. And this goes well beyond our solar system, well into the uh, Milky Way galaxy. Okay, um, so... Uh, the fact that Admiral Byrd spoke of flying objects that could fly from pole to pole at incredible speeds. And this is what I mentioned was documented within uh, the Chilean newspaper in 19, uh, uh, that was 1947. Um, during and in the immediate aftermath of World War II, one can't help but wonder whether there is some truth to the, to the Nazi Antarctica myth. It's not a myth, it's fact. Even so, could Operation High Jump and Bird's quotes have overshadowed the truth about uh, British excursions into Antarctica? By way of misinformation, bringing attention to his mission, and by doing so and making sure that history only remembers one mysterious Antarctica mission? When the Antarctica mystery is mentioned, Britain is never given more than a footnote. That is surprising in fact in itself especially as British forces were active in Antarctica throughout the war and quite possibly took the initiative in dealing with the Antarctic Nazi threat a whole 12 months before operation was initiated. And that is correct. Britain's activities on Antarctica, though less documented and more clandestine, are just as intriguing as the supposed much vaulted and uh, better known Operation High Jump. Unfortunately for Britain, though victorious in the war, it was bankrupted and humiliated by the two new superpowers. But Britain was in a position to regain some pride and uh, serpentipiously upset its uh, supposed allies with the final uh, decisive battle against the surviving Nazis, a battle that would never be recorded in the history books, a battle that would make its claims on the continent more legitimate, but most importantly, a battle that ended the war that it had been compelled to wage. Uh, then it goes into the section of Antarctic postal stamps uh, claim or com excuse me, uh, commemoration. On February 1st, 1946, a set of postal stamps was released with His Majesty's royal approval. The stamps caused international outrage and brought it on di diplomatic crisis for a war-weary Great Britain. The offending eight postal stamps commemorated Britain's claim to the Falkland Island dependencies. But one of them also depicted a territorial map of Antarctica that was completely overlooked. Chile's and most of Argentina's claim on the continent. Now, why would Britain, when the world's economy was in such dire straits, bring about an international crisis over an area of the world that appeared on the surface to be totally devoid of life? Many historians claim that British, Britain's uh, post-war interests arose because, with the Britain in, in dire need of materials, Antarctica was deemed as a solution. The stamps were a way of making Britain's claim valid. That assertion, however, partially true, does not explain why British forces, as part of Operation Taberlan, T-A-B-E-R-L-A-N, were on the continent throughout and in the immediate aftermath of the war. Uh, 
Operation Taberlane was activated as a measure of monitoring German activities on the Antarctic continent. The known British bases were mainly on the Arctic uh, Peninsula in such places as uh, Port Lockroy and Hope Bay and on the islands surrounding the peninsula, such as the secret bases on Deception and uh, Winkie Island, which is W-I-N-C-K-E, though some were set up on the continent. The most secret of all has not, and more likely never will be disclosed. The base at Maudheim, and that's M-A-U-D-H-E-I-M, near the Molig Hoffman mountain range, which, and that's M-U-H-L-I-G, second word Hoffman mountain range, with two N's, in Queen Maudland, or alternatively, what is known since the Germans claimed it, New Schwabenland was so secret that it was never given a name or even a grid reference on official maps. Could the stamps have been released to commemorate a successful mission in Queen Maudland? The facts and rumors, as well as a story dispensed by a wartime SAS, SAS is British uh, Special uh, Operations Officer, uh, may shed some light on the many mysteries of the Antarctic area a front that has been kept secret for 60 years and on a hostile encounter that will never be divulged to the public. Britain has suppressed so many wartime events in the name of national security, which we all know by now is propaganda, that even 60 years onward, many people are still none the wiser about the secrets of the war, from Rudolf Hess to peace treaties to even more sinister happenings, including Britain's knowledge of the Nazi extermination camps, the Irish Republicans' army's flirtation with Nazis, when I mean, they're supporting them, and the lesser-known secrets such as the SS concentration camps on British soil in the Alderney, and that's A-L-D-E-R-N-E-Y, in the Channel Islands, right off France, which was British-owned territory. With just those few listed, a pattern of suppression is emerging, and on some, a total denial is normally forthcoming. Antarctica is no exception. With the passing of time, all those who served in New Schwabeland, and that's N-E-U-S-C-H-W-A-B-E-N-L-A-N-D, campaign are no longer with us. The last survivor gave me the final account of the forgotten battle. I hasten to add the story was told on two separate occasions, 10 years apart, and there was not one discrepancy in either account. Now we go on to the section, the New Schwabeland campaign. When victory in Europe was announced, and that was May 8th, uh, 1945, my unit was resting in a cave in the former Yugoslavia. I was thankful that the war had finally ended, though the war was still being waged in the Pacific, and tensions rising in Palestine were warned that our war could continue. Thankfully, I was spared from participating in the war against Japan, but alas, I was post posted to Palestine where the influx of Jews uh, allied with a rise in Zionist terrorism was causing anguish not only to the inhabitants of Palestine, but also to the British forces that were sent to stem the Jewish influx and quell the uprisings. I was warned that my posting in Palestine would continue indefinitely. I saw many other of my fellow soldiers die. Thankfully, I received an order at the beginning of October 1945 to report to my commanding officer, as I had been selected for a mission so secret that none of my senior officers knew why I had been requested to go to Gibraltar. I was not told why I had to report, but I went hopeful that I would soon be discharged into Civilian Street. How wrong I was. I would be spending another Christmas on war footing, meaning as a troop. 
Once I arrived on Gibraltar, I was secreted away by a major, a British major, informed that I would be sent to the Falkland Island Dependencies, which is just the Falkland Island group, for further briefing and that I would be joined by several other soldiers from other elite British forces. The mystery thickened as we were all flown to the Falkland Islands under complete silence. We were ordered to not even speculate about why we had been selected and where we were going. Upon reaching the desolate and forbidding Falkland Islands, we were introduced to the officer who was leading the expedition and a Norwegian who had served in the Norwegian resistance, an expert in winter warfare who was going to be training us for the mission that we had no inkling about, no idea. The Falklands is now considered the best kept secret in the British Army, and being posted there normally meant an easy few years. However, things were difficult and different in the 1940s, even more so for those who had been selected with me. We were forced to undertake a grueling month's training where we were prepared for cold weather warfare, from being plunged into the icy Atlantic to facing the elements in a tent on South Georgia. The training was arduous and there seemed little sense in the madness that we were forced to undertake. However, after the month's training, we were briefed by a major and a scientist, and as the mission was relayed to us, we all realized that there would be little chance of us all returning, especially if the suspicions proved correct. We were informed that we were to investigate, quote, anomalous activities around the Mulig Hoffman Mountains from the British base at Mordheim. Antarctica, so we were told, was British's secret war. We were then briefed on British activities in the South Pole during the war. We sat intrigued as to what was being divulged. None of us had heard anything so fascinating or frightening. It was not common knowledge that the Nazis had been to Antarctica in 1938 and 1939. And even less known was the fact that Britain began to set up secret bases around Antarctica in response. The one we were to visit, Mordheim, was the biggest secret and the most important as well as the most clandestine Antarctic base of them all. The reason for its importance was the fact that it was within 200 miles of where the Nazis had supposedly built their Antarctic base. We sat there stunned, but the mystery still the mystery deepened. We were told about German activity in the Southern Ocean around Antarctica. We were also informed that an inestimable number of U-boats were missing and unaccounted for. But worse, some of those that had surrendered months after the war had ended fueled even more speculation to this. British forces had captured three of the biggest names in the Nazi party, Hermann Hesse, Heinrich Himmler, and Admiral Donitz. And with their capture, Britain was given information that was not going to be shared with Russia or the United States. That information compelled Britain to act alone, and we were spearheading that operation. We were told in no specific terms that what was expected of us and what Britain expected us to find on Antarctica. Britain had more than a strong suspicion that the Germans had built a secret base and had speared many of the unaccountable Nazis away from the turmoil in Europe. Still, more and more revelations were forthcoming. The summer before, we were told, the original scientists and com commandos had found an ancient tunnel, in quotes, under orders, the force went through the tunnel, but only two returned before the Antarctic winter set in. During the winter months, the two survivors made absurd claims over the radio about polar men. That's P-O-L-A-R. Ancient tunnels and Nazis 
Radio contact was finally lost in July of 1945, and ominously for our mission, going into the unknown, the last broadcast brought us all further anxiety as we listened to the fear in the voice. In quotes, the polar men have found us, exclamation, was screamed before the contact was lost. After the radio broadcast was played, we were then given a rousing speech from the major who would be leading the expedition to investigate what had happened. We are going to the base at Marham, find the tunnel, investigate the enigma of the polar men and the Nazis and do what we can to make sure the Nazi threat is destroyed. When asked for questions, we all had so many and thankfully the answers were honest and direct. They were informed that the invasive action was being taken because Britain was well aware of the US and USSR's intention in mounting their own expeditions and Britain did not want to risk the chance that the U.S. or the USSR would discover the base and gain further Nazi technology. Both countries had a technological advantage over Britain because of the scientists' equipment and research both countries had recovered. Nevertheless, Britain wanted to be the nation to destroy the menace because Britain viewed Antarctica as under the British Empire's jurisdiction, and if the Nazis were there, it was their duty and their desire to eradicate them first and thus deny both the U.S. and the USSR the propaganda value of fighting the last battle of World War II. We were flown to the predestinated drop-off point, which was 20 miles from the Mannheim base. Snow tractors had already been dispatched and we were awaiting our arrival. After parachuting into the icy wilderness full of fear and trepidation, we reached the snow tractors and from that moment on, we were on a war footing. We had to operate under complete radio silence. We were alone with no backup and no chance of retreat if our worst fears were confirmed. We approached the base wary of what was waiting us. But when we got there, the base appeared to be devoid of life, a ghost town. Instantly, our suspicions were roused. But just like all the other previous campaigns I had fought during the war, we had a job to do, and so our personal fears could not shroud our judgment. As we split up to search the base, a tripwire was detonated and a siren sounded, destroying the silence and startling the whole force. A shout was soon heard demanding us to identify ourselves, but the voice could not be targeted. With our guns raised, the major introduced us to the voice, and then thankfully the voice was given a body. The voice belonged to a lone survivor, and what he divulged made us more anxious and had us wishing that there were more troops amongst our ranks. The lone survivor claimed that in Bunker 1 was the other survivor from the, quote, tunnel trip, along with one of the mysterious polar men that we had heard on the recorded broadcast. Despite obstructions and objections from the survivor, Bunker 1 was ordered to be opened. The survivor had to be held back, and his fear and anguish panicked us instantly, and none of us wanted to be the one to enter the bunker. Fortunately, I was not selected to enter. That honor was bestowed on the youngest member of our unit. He proceeded inside, hesitating slightly as he struggled with the door. Once inside, a silence descended across the base, followed moments later by two gunshots. The door was open and the polar man dashed to freedom. None of us was expecting what we saw and the polar man had fled into the surrounding terrain so quick that only a few token shots were fired. Out of fear and awe at what we had seen, we all decided to go into the bunker. Go in we did, and two bodies were found. 
The soldier who had pulled the shortest straw was found with his throat ripped out and more heinous. The survivor had been stripped to the bone. What we had witnessed demanded answers. And with our abject anger and at seeing one of our unit die within hours of landing on the continent, our anger was taken out on the lone survivor who had warned us against opening Bunker 1. The whole unit listened categorically to the major's questions, but it was the answers that were to provide and provoke the most intrigue. The first question that needed answering was just what had happened to the other survivor and how he'd become trapped in the bunker with that polar man. However, the lone survivor preferred to start from the beginning, from when they had first found, quote, the tunnel. Whilst he narrated what had happened, the scientists who had accompanied us scribbled down everything divulged. It transpired that the area near the tunnel was one of Antarctica's unique dry valleys, and this was how they managed to find the tunnel with such ease. Every one of the 30 personnel at the Mordheim base was ordered to investigate and, if possible, find out exactly where that tunnel led. They followed the tunnel for miles, and eventually they came to a vast underground cavern that was abnormally warm. Some of the scientists believed that it was warm geothermally. In the huge cavern were underground lakes. However, the mystery deepened as the cavern was lit artificially. The cavern provided so extensive that they had to split up, and that was when the real discoveries were made. The Nazis had constructed a huge base into the caverns and even built docks for U-boats, and one was identified supposedly, meaning the U-boat. Still, the deeper they traveled, the more strange visions they were greeted with. The survivor reported that hangars for strange planes and excavations galore had been documented. The strange planes were the UFOs. Building base camp at Maudheim. That's the next section. However, their presence had not gone unnoticed. The two survivors at the Maudheim base witnessed their comrades get captured and executed one by one. After witnessing only six of the executions, they fled to the tunnel uh, lest they be caught with the aim to block up the tunnel, though it was too late. The polar men were coming, claimed the survivors. With enemy forces hot on their trail, they had no choice but to try to get back to the base so they could inform and warn their superiors about what they had uncovered. They managed to get back to the base, but with winter approaching and little chance of rescue, they believed it was their duty to make sure the secret Nazi base was reported. And so they split up, each taking a wireless radio, uh, waiting in separate bunkers. One of the survivors tempted one of the polar men into the bunker in hope that they believed that only one had survived. The plan worked, but to the detriment of his life and to the radio. Unfortunately, the brave soul in Bunker One uh, had the only fully operational wireless radio, which was destroyed in the fracas. The other survivor had no option but to sit, wait, and try to avoid going stir-crazy, the one they met. The mystery, mystery of who or what the polar men were was explained, not satisfactorily, but explained nonetheless as a product of Nazi science, genetic engineering. And the enigma of how the Nazis were getting power was also explained, but not in scientific terms. The power that the Nazis were utilizing was by volcanic activity, which gave them heat for steam and also helped produce electricity. But the Nazis had also mastered an unknown energy source because a survivor claimed, after what I had witnessed, the amount of electricity needed is more 
that could be produced, in my opinion, by steam. The scientists among the party dismissed most of what was divulged and rebuked the survivor for his lack of scientific education and implied that his revelations could not possibly be true. Though the scientists dismissed the survivor's claims, the major didn't. He wanted to know more about the enemy that they were facing, but more fundamentally, just what the polar man was going to do next. The answer from the survivor did nothing to comfort us and provoked the scientists to announce that the survivor was certifiable, meaning crazy, which was not true. Disconcerted is too weak a word to describe how we felt when the survivor replied to the major's questions about the escaped polar man's intention. And his answer was, he will watch, wait, and wonder just how different we taste. End of quote. On hearing that, the major issued the battle cry and guard duty was set up whilst the major and the scientists discussed in private just what we were going to do next, even though it was obvious to the rest of us. The next morning, we were ordered to investigate the tunnel, and for the next 48 hours, we made our way steadily to the Dry Valley again and the supposed ancient tunnel. Upon arriving in the Dry Valley, we were all amazed. For what we had been told, that Antarctica was completely icebound, and yet here we were in a valley that reminded me of being back in northern Af African Sahara. We were forbidden from even approaching the tunnel until the temporary base camp had been erected. And whilst the men constructed the base, the scientist and the major investigated the tunnel. After a few hours, they returned to the now complete camp to chronicle what they had seen and what our next plan of action was to be. The tunnel was not an ancient passageway at all, claimed the scientist, although the major added that the walls were made of smooth granite and looked infinite. We're informed that we would be able to make our own minds up after we had rested for the night. Sleeping in Antarctica during the summer months was difficult with perpetual daylight covering the continent, but that night sleep was even more difficult to come by with all the thoughts running through each of our minds about what we would find and just when or where we would encounter the polar man again. Just before we were assigned our times for guard duty, we are informed that we would be following the tunnel all the way. That means to the end. And he stated, to the Fuhrer if need be. That night, our fears were confirmed, as the polar man did indeed return. However, this time, no more casualties occurred on our side, but the polar man was slain, and he was lured into the camp. The scientists decided that the polar man was human, but it seemed had been able to produce more hair and withstand the cold far more effectively. The corpse, after a brief post-mortem, was stored in a body bag, and the cold could be preserved until a more meticulous dissection could occur. The next morning, it was decided that the two would remain at the tunnel's entrance with the corpse, the tractors, the equipments, but more fundamentally, the radio. The major leading the expedition needed the Norwegian for his expertise and also the scientists and the survivor, too, was critical for the mission's success. The rest of us wanted to join in. I was selected with the other jubilant four who had been undertaking one of the most exciting and possibly one of the most important expeditions in human history. The two who had kept behind were disappointed, but their roles were just as vital to the mission's success as the nine who would be traversing into the unknown. As the nine of us prepared to enter the tunnel, we made sure we had took enough ammunition and explosives to wage a small war and hopefully destroy the base in its entirety, for that was our mission, not to salvage, but to destroy. 
We walked into the darkness, and thankfully, after four hours of walking, we began to see some light in the far distance. However, the light was still another hour away, and as each of us battled with our minds questions of what we would uncover, we inched forward. Eventually, we reached the vast cavern that was artificially lit. We were then led to where the survivors had witnessed the executions. The survivors stated it was as covert as one could possibly have wished for. As we looked over the entire cavern, we were overwhelmed by the number of personnel scurrying about like ants. But what was impressive was the huge constructions that were being built. From what we were witnessing, the Nazis, it appeared, had been on Antarctica for a long time. The scientist jotted down everything he could, drew diagrams, and took rock samples as well as the odd photographs. The major, on the other hand, was more interested in how the base was to be destroyed without being caught by the Nazis who were present. After two days of vigilant reconnaissance, the scientist and the major decided on the targets for the mines. The mines were to be placed all around the roof of the cavern with no other targets on the to-do list, such as the generator and the petrol dumps, and if possible and attainable, the ammunition dumps. Throughout the day, mines were laid and more photographs were taken. And with the odds of not being detected looking good, a hostage was taken, that being one of the German uh, troops, as well as a proof of the Nazi base. The polar men and photographs of new and quite advanced Nazi technology. When the mission to place the mines that would destroy the base had been accomplished, as well as a substantial proof of the base gathered, we headed toward the tunnel, but alas, we were spotted, and more of the polar men and a troop of Nazis gave chase. Upon reaching the tunnel, we needed to put an obstacle in the way to slow down our enemy long enough for the mines to detonate. Some mines were placed at the entrance to the tunnel, and when the explosions were heard, we were hopeful that not just the base had been completely destroyed, but so too the enemy forces giving chase. We were wrong. The mines did indeed close the tunnel, but for those Nazis and polar men behind, the chase was still on. In a fighting retreat, only three of the 10 of their men escaped the tunnel. The Norwegian, the scientists, and myself. That's the lone survivor. The rest had fallen gallantly in making sure that some of the party survived. Upon reaching the safety of the dry valley, enough mines were laid to close the tunnel permanently. After the mines were detonated, there was no evidence of any tunnel ever existing. Suspiciously, very little of the evidence unearthed remains. Whether it had been lost accidentally or purposely, it mattered little because the scientists had already made it his and ultimately the mission's own conclusions. The camp was disbanded and we returned to Maudheim Base where we were uh, evacuated and flown back to the safety of the Falkland Islands. Upon reaching South Georgia, we were issued with a directive that we were forbidden to reveal what we had seen, heard, or even encountered. The tunnel was explained away as nothing more than a freak nature, a freak of nature, a glacial erosion was a scientific scientist special term. The polar men were nothing more than unkempt soldiers that had gone crazy. The fact that they were German was never submitted into the report, and any notion of the mission going public was firmly rebuted. The mission would never be made official, though certain elements of the mission were to be leaked to the Russians and the Americans. So my last Christmas of World War II was spent on the Antarctic continent in 1945, fighting the same Nazis I had fought against every Christmas since 1940. 
What was worse was the fact that the expedition was never given any recognition, nor the survivors any credit. Instead, the British survivors were, uh, excuse me, were demobbed uh, de from the forces while the scientist and his report would soon disappear. The mission never to be known about except by the select few. That mission was never made into the history books, but the return mission in February 1950, conducted by a joint British-Swedish-Norwegian expedition that lasted till January 1952, did in fact get reported. The main purpose of the expedition was to verify and investigate some of the findings of the 1938-39 Nazi expeditions to New Schwabenland. Five years after our mission, Mordheim and New Schwabenland were revisited, and that expedition had everything to do with the New Schwabenland campaign, but more importantly, with what we had destroyed. For the intermediate years between the missions, the Royal Air Force continually flew flights over New Schwabenland. The RAF's official reason for their extensive flights was that they were searching for a suitable place to set up base camps. However, uh, one can't but help wonder. Uh, next section is uh, how Britain gained the knowledge. My U-boat men, six years of U-boat warfare lie behind us. You have fought like lions. A crushing and superior superiority has compressed us into a narrow area. The continuation of the struggle is impossible from the base that remain. U-boat men, unbroken in your warlike courage, you are laying down your arms after a heroic fight which knows no equal. In reverent memory, we think of our comrades who have sealed their loyalty to the Fuhrer and Fatherland with their death. Comrades, maintain in the future your U-boat spirit, which you have fought bravely at sea and unflinchingly during the long war welfare of our fatherland. Long live Germany. That was the statement by uh, Grand Admiral Donitz, who was the uh, admiral of the entire Kriegsmarine. And that was uh, 4 May 1945, orders U-boats to start returning their, uh, their journey homeward. With 16 German U-boats sunk in the South Atlantic area between October 1942 and September 1944, and with most of those sunk in covert activities, Britain had long since been aware of New Schwabenland being a possible base. But it was not until after the war in Europe had ended that the world awoke to this possibility. On July 18, 1945, newspapers around the world focused their headlines on Antarctica. The New York Times stated, quote, Antarctica Haven reported, while others claimed that, uh, quote, Hitler had been at the South Pole. These headlines, which shook the world, were based in part on fact. The news reports and events happening in South America made the world sit up and take notice, but not least the military forces of the United States and Great Britain. On June 10th, 1945, an unmarked German U-boat surrendered to the Argentine Navy. No further details were released. The whereabouts of at least 100 other U-boats, those being the XX-1 and XX-3, where at least 100 disappeared because Germany never stopped uh, building uh, submarines from 1933 all the way through to 1945. And they produced well over 1,200. On, uh, these headlines shook the world were based in part on the fact that the news reports and events happening in South America made the world sit up and take notice, not least the military forces of the United States and Great Britain. 
On June 10th, 1945, I mentioned about the German U-boat arriving. Uh, then the whereabouts of at least 100 of the other U-boats mystery. During the early months of 1945, the size of the U-boat fleet was still increasing. In March, the U-boat fleet reached its peak strength of 463. That were still current. The mystery deepened when on uh, July 10th, 1945, the German U-boat 530 surrendered at Mar del Plata, which is Argentina. It's a coastal base. Um, it took only eight days for the world to know. However, the U-boat mystery did not end with U-boat 530. Just over a month later, on August 17, 1945, U-boat 977 also surrendered at Mar del Plata. Even more curious is the fact the same month that U-boat uh, U-465 was scuttled off of Patagonia. Only three months after the Kriegmarines, U-boat strength had peaked. The first of the unaccounted for U-boats had appeared. Unfavorably, though, historians tend to gloss over the enigma of the missing U-boats, and Hart also offers no explanation other than to explain the 362 known U-boats' fate. After Germany surrendered in May, 159 U-boats surrendered, but a further 203 were scuttled by their crews. That was characteristic of the U-boats' crews, stubborn pride, and unshakable morale. So those two totals of 159 and 203 are the 362, but that's not including the 100 of the senior class that actually went to Antarctica and into inner Earth. Okay, um, with so many U-boats missing, a minimum of 60 were estimated missing at the end of the war. That's absolutely inaccurate. And with Britain still possessing one of the world's largest navies and strategically based territories in the Falklands and Antarctica, Britain was the most ideally placed of all the allies to deal with a Nazi haven. It would have been the best informed about missing U-boats due to the Southern Hemisphere territories and an empire that, though crumbling, was still the largest in the world had ever seen. Intelligence soon substantiated the suspicions with the interrogation of the captains of both U-boat uh, 977 and 530. Captain Wilhelm Bernhardt, commanding officer of the U-530, claimed that Operation Valkyrie 2, so it's Valkyrie, V-A-L-K-Y-R-I-E, hyphen numeric 2, uh, his U-boat set off to the Antarctic on 13 April 1945. Under interrogation, and what that truly means, Jeff, is uh, under torture, he divulged just what the mission had involved. Supposedly, 16 crew members had landed on the Antarctic shore and deposited numerous boxes that were apparently documents and relics from the Third Reich. Heinz Schaeffer, and that's S-C-H-E-F-F-E-R, uh, captain of the U-boat uh, 977, also claimed that his U-boat had speared relics away from the Reich. <coughs> Excuse me. However, Less plausible is the theory that the U-boat delivered the remains of Hitler and Braun, which I know is not true because I have pictures of them in Argentina from 1945 onward, as of uh, April. Um, and the other theories that the Holy Grail and the Spear of Destiny were also taken to Antarctica only cloud the truth. That part would be correct because Hitler was uh, deep into uh, the occult as well as collecting uh, uh, ancient biblical artifacts. What does help substantiate this story is a little-known fact, which Pravda, which is the Russian newspaper then, 
reported on 16 January 2003 that in 1983 Special Services seized a confidential letter that Captain Schaeffer wrote to Captain Bernhardt. In the letter, Schaeffer pleads to Bernhardt not to publish his memoirs in too profound a detailed manner and in fact state that his intent was for the world not to know the truth. And it was quoted as, we all made an oath to keep the secret. We did nothing wrong. We just obeyed orders and fought for our love of Germany and its survival. Please think again. Isn't it better to picture everything as a fable? What results do you plan to achieve with your revelations? Think about it, please. Apparently, Bernhardt was thinking of telling the truth, and uh, Captain Schaefer was uh, trying to persuade him otherwise and keep it a mystery. Another mystery that has been never been solved is that the cargo of mercury that was contained inside U-boat 859, which was sunk on September 23, 1944, by the British Royal Navy submarine HMS Trenchant in the Strait of Malacca in the Java Sea. So far from home was such an anomalous cargo, a cargo that could be utilized as a fuel source, and it was used uh, uh, by the, uh, uh, the crafts, the Hanabus and the uh, other uh, um, discrafts that they had produced, the Thule and the Vril. Uh, the survivor divulged to the British captors that they had been carrying and that information would have definitely raised eyebrows when their find was relayed to the British intelligence. The case of U-boat 859 was not an isolated one. Many German U-boats were active throughout the world. Many supplied the Japanese throughout the war and strangely even after German capitulation. In July 1945, an unmarked German U-boat, supposedly part of a secret convoy, delivered a new invention to Japanese research and development units in Japan. The Japanese uh, constructed and activated the device. The device soared into the sky where, however, inexplicably, it burst into flames. It was never dared to be built again. That I'm aware of. The British Navy have already retrieved many of the U-boats that had surrendered in Norway and was well aware that many more had fled, especially if the tale reported in the Latin American press uh, about a German U-boat convoy totally annihilating the British destroyers that engaged the convoy is to be believed. That is correct. On May 2nd, 1945, El Mercurio, the newspaper, uh, the uh, Chilean newspaper, and Der Weg, which is a German newspaper, claimed that the final naval battle of World War II between the Kriegsmarine, the Royal Navy, and the British Royal Navy had been won by the Kriegsmarine, and that the story had been suppressed in the Western presses for fear of stimulating German resistance. Only one destroyer was reportedly spared, and the captain was reportedly as declaring, in quotes, may God help me, May I never again encounter such a force, end of quote. Though the story has been suppressed and the British government would never admit to the event, rumors of the naval battle are whispered among ex-servicemen. But alas, very little of the rumor is substantiated because there's no proof left. The boats sunk, many of them. The missing U-boats were part of the Antarctic jigsaw puzzle that Britain had been putting together since the Nazis first sent Admiral Richer on his Thule-sponsored polar mission. And with British Intelligence Network, the SOE, which is Special Operations Executive, and the SIS, which is Secret Intelligence Service, provided virtually all the information to the Allied forces via the Enigma machine, which they had captured. It's an immense European spy network during the, role, 
during the war, the picture was appearing slowly. One prime example of British intelligence excelling was in how much Britain knew about the Nazis' secret atomic weapons program, which in turn helped the RAF, the Royal Air Force, bomb the Nazis' secret research station at Penamonde, Germany, in the Baltic Sea. That was where a baron, he was royal, um, uh, uh, in charge of the uh, NASA program, uh, Werner von Braun, there we go, uh, was stationed, and he was the one who reigned hell over Great Britain between July to October of 1941 with the V-1 uh, and the V-2 missiles. Okay, rockets. Uh, so onward, um, the Germans were at a loss as to how the British had ever heard about it, let alone be able to bomb it. And that's the end of uh, uh, part one. We go into part two. Uh, Britain's influence, influential captures. With British forces controlling northern Germany and the ports that went with their sector at the end of World War II, there was a strong likelihood of their capturing most of the Nazi hierarchy. They were also ideally placed because Russia was more interested in Berlin and the vast U.S. forces were stationed mainly in southern Germany, where they had been sent to investigate the supposed redoubt. And that's in quotation marks. Uh, even so, four years before the end of the war, Britain had managed to apprehend Deputy Führer of the Third Reich, Rudolf Hess, and he was arguably the most knowledgeable of all the Nazis at that juncture. Rudolf Hess landed in Scotland on May 10th, 1941, and asked to meet with the Duke of Hamilton. He flew in Scotland and wanted to speak because he wanted to uh, end the war. And his plans for peace talks were quickly rebutted, and so began his 46th year of incarceration in prison. Hess's imprisonment is one of the most widely discussed mysteries of the war. Some claim he was imprisoned because of the damage any revelations revelations he possessed would inflict upon the British monarchy. Others claim that the British refusal of his peace proposal led to the nation's huge losses territorially, materially, financially, and emotionally because of his silencing. The British people never heard the peace terms or learned how beneficial they may have proved. However, as Christoph Friedrich claims, uh, some believe that Hess was entrusted with the all-important Antarctic file. But whether this was a paper or a mental note, one thing is for certain. Hess, as deputy Fuhrer, would have known everything about the Nazis' Antarctic intentions. Though Hess was dismissed by both Hitler and British government as insane, surely Hess's insanity would have restricted his ability in his numerous roles in the Nazi party and government. Yet Hess was the chief of the uh, Auslands organization, Commissar for Foreign Policy. Uh, the Commissar for All University Matters and University Policy. He was com Commissar for All Technological Matters and Organization and also head of the Office for Racial Policy. Hess, in layman turn, had his finger in every pie. Rudolf Hess was also an active member of the Thule Society, and his interest in Antarctica would have been on both personal and professional levels. Hess, a keen aviator, used the position in both the Nazi Party and the Thule Society, Thule Society to meet Richard Byrd when he lectured, that's Admiral Byrd, when he lectured to the personnel who were heading to the Antarctic with the Deutsches Antarktisch Expedition. It's the German version. German Antarctic Expedition in 1938. And through his channels, Hess would never have known 
would have known everything that had been discovered in New Swabiland. Bird, a living legend throughout the world for being the first man to fly over both the North and South Poles, was possibly the most well-informed polar explorer ever, and he divulged his vast knowledge and details of his exploits to the Nazis. Bird's advice in his lectures and ultimately the Nazis' successful expedition to claim New Swabiland may have given the Nazis conviction enough to establish a viable Antarctic base. Hess's flight and eventual capture a few years after the, the Deutsches Antarctic uh, expedition meant that the plans would have to be underway. His inviolable position as deputy fur and his close affiliation with the Thule Society, which sponsored the expedition, meant, as Canadian journalist Pierre von Passen claimed shortly after Hess's flight, that there was no major military plan and secret of the Third Reich of which we were unaware, or him. Of his 46 years in prisons, Hess spent the first four totally under British jurisdiction. The secrets he gave away in those four years, though dismissed officially as lunacy by the British government and at the Nuremberg trials, were taken seriously in some quarters, particularly after Britain had caught more of Germany's most powerful Nazis at the end of the war. Unfortunately, with Hess being in prison until his suspicious, quote, suicide in 1987 at the age of 97, um, all records about him are locked away under the UK Official Secrets Act. And that's just like ours. And will <laughs> they'll not be available in the foreseeable future. Only circumstantial evidence can be used to gauge how much or how little Hess knew about the Antarctic Haven. Heinrich Himmler, Reichsführer of the SS, was captured on May 23, 1945 by the British. Though he managed to kill himself with a cyanide capsule and thus evade interrogation, his entourage did not have that luxury. Himmler was denounced as a traitor by Hitler for trying to make peace with the U.S. and Britain. But as Himmler had nothing to bargain with and his heinous, heinous past meant certain execution, he still could have offered the British information uh, that they had desired in the hope of the escape or at worst a chance to evade the hangman. Unfortunately for him, with no chance of a reprieve and Donuts being apprehended the same day, Hitler became irrelevant. And with his disgust at being treated as just a lowly soldier, he announced who he was before introducing his own, inducing his own death. Britain nevertheless more than likely gained all the knowledge that Himmler possessed by interrogating his entourage exhaustively. Whatever knowledge Himmler had wished to share was shared and without the British having to keep one eye on the uh, vilest men in Europe and in their custody. Himmler, labeled as a half-crank, half-schoolmaster by Albert Speer, had managed to rise from being a lowly poultry farmer to becoming the most feared and reviled man in Europe because of a system of terror which made mass murder an industry and because of his faithful paramilitary SS who ensured loyalty and obedience to the Nazi state. The SS Anaharbe missions, which Himmler authorized in pursuit of the ancestral Aryan legacy to such remote places as Tibet, Egypt, Iraq, and even as close as the Channel Islands, brought in an inestimable amount of research. And through the 1938 Deutsches Antarktische 
uh, expedition was firmly under Herman Gorman's control, Hamler was indeed more than interested in the findings of the expedition and possibly of discovering an entrance to the fabled hollow earth. So much so that uh, he surely would have demanded to have been informed for the sake of furthering the Aryan legacy myth. Even so, how much Himmler knew that it was not already known by British intelligence and at the end of the war is debatable, though invaluable to the Allies and Britain in particular were the results of the numerous SS Anaherbe missions, and that's A-H-N-E-N-E-R-B-E, Anaherbe, and that was for the ancient legacy of the Aryan race, which uh, Himmler was in charge of. Even though Dr. Ernst Schaefer, that's S-C-H-A-F-E-R, who led the Tibet expedition, claimed that Himmler had some very strange ideas and also that they all dabbled in the occult. This made no difference to the validity or invalidity of any research or evidence collected. Himmler evaded the hangman's noose by a cyanide capsule, and Goring also, uh, Hermann Goring also used a cyanide capsule on the eve of his execution. Could the pills have been supplied by Britain's SOS or SOE in return for information? Hess, Himmler, and Goring were all able to commit suicide, quote, while in custody, two of them being firmly in British custody at the time. All three, quote, suicides have an aura of mystery surrounding them, especially since the three men would have known and had knowledge to share about Antarctica. Hermann Goring, though captured by U.S. forces, still had a fair deal of knowledge about the German Antarctic expedition of 1938-39, to as well as 1939-1940. to For it was he who had commemorated the first expedition with a medal and bragged to the world about the German success. Goring was the Nazi party's number two for so long, but he managed to cheat death and justice in the most mysterious of circumstances. Born into affluence as a son of a colonial officer, Goring became one of Germany's World War I air aces and ended up highly decorated. He joined the Nazi party in 1923 and took part in the Push, which was the German movement to uh, try to overthrow uh, the existing government, where he established, and that's spelled P-U-T-S-C-H in German, established uh, himself in Hitler's favor, but also received a groin injury. As a result of this injury, Goring became addicted to morphine, an addiction that would have profound consequences. Goring's marriage to a wealthy and influential woman helped him consolidate his position among the elite. His connections to the upper classes assisted the Nazi party far more beneficially than any parades. In 1932, Goring was elected to Speaker of the Reichstag, their government, but despite his popularity, he was making enemies because of his self-obsession, ambition, and greed. He became one of Germany's richest men, virtually all his wealth plundered from the victims of the Nazis. In 1936, he reached the pinnacle of his career in the Nazi party when he became Hitler's heir apparent, his replacement. Yet his popularity had not yet peaked. He would have to wait until the early German success in deploying the Blitzkrieg against Poland for that short-lived honor. But his addiction was starting to plague his judgment and standing among the elite. The early German victories saw Goring rise in Hitler's estimation, but Hitler's fickle temperament was due to change. When Goring's Luftwaffe failed to win the Battle of Britain, despite having superior numbers, Goring fell out of favor. 
He then found solace only in his morphine and his vast plundered wealth. By 1943, Goring was no longer part of the top Nazi leadership. He was heavily addicted, a virtual recluse, and drastically out of favor. Any knowledge about Nazi survival plans that he would have been privy to would have been disputable, but it is highly likely he would have been able to divulge to U.S. intelligence enough about Antarctica, learned from his time amongst the elite to have compelled the United States to consider the possibility of a Nazi base on Antarctica and to take action. Moreover, the Americans would have heard rumors about what the British had actually discovered. The first Antarctic summer after the completion of the Nuremberg trials saw Operation High Jump launched. But it is quite possible that the Americans missed the boat because the then most well-informed Nazi, Grand Admiral Karl Donitz, had already been interrogated extensively by the British. Could a secret deal have been struck between Donitz and Britain? When we look at the facts, it is more conceivable than a deal was indeed struck. Grand Animal Donuts, key to the Antarctic Haven. Another quote. I believe I have fought for a just cause and I refuse to run away from my responsibilities when the Nazis, shortly after their final collapse, offered to convey me aboard a submarine to save refuge. Uh, that was by Major Vid Kung Quislink, and that's V-I-D-K-U-N, her first name. Last name is Q-U-I-S-I-N-G, Quisling. Grand Animal Donuts had taken over the leadership of Nazi Germany and every U-boat, ship, boat, and port still held by the Germans after Hitler's death. And death is in quotes because he didn't die from a suicide pact. Uh, he would have been the perfect successor to orchestrate a tactical escape, an escape that would ensure the German deaths and the research undertaken were not in vain. And in short, they would enable the seeds of a Fourth Reich to disperse. Many Nazis chose to stay and meet certain death, in spite of the Kriegsmarine having the largest submarine fleet in the Atlantic and the Navy's willingness to continue the fight from Norway. It was not that they had nowhere to flee, but many yearned for martyrdom and knew that a greater scheme was being implemented, the emergence of a Fourth Reich. Quisling wanted to die as a Nazi and show no remorse, just as those who were hung at Nuremberg had. Their assuredness came from a warped view that they would be deemed martyrs. Hitler, Himmler, and Goebbels, and numerous other high-ranking Nazis committed suicide, and taking one's own life has been the norm through history when the battle is lost and only public humiliation and execution are certain. Those who committed suicide in Germany's final collapse and those who stood at Nuremberg trial did so knowingly that if they had fled, they would have been compromised any secret bases or havens, as well as the expatriate communities that flourished in South America and throughout the rest of the world. The chances of a Fourth Reich manifesting with so many high-profile Nazis in hiding were minimal, and the Germans meticulously and diligently ever knew that fact. Sacrifices had to be made. And those there were uh, 10 scheduled for execution, Jeff. Uh, nine were executed, and the last one uh, took a... Um, uh, cyanide pill, as he knew he was uh, going to uh, be uh, hung to death. And they used the hanging as the uh, execution for the uh, Nuremberg trials, which were a joke because that was our excuse, the United States evil military and government, to get and work deals for those that had truly incredible knowledge in physics, propulsion, uh, biochemistry, and many other disciplines. Okay. 
So it was, it was only a fraction of them that even went to trial. Uh, these people, most of them were, were well, as as you've reported, brought into the United States and run NASA and things, right? That's correct. Hermann Obert, he became, uh, he was a mentor to uh, um, Werner von Braun, and von Braun ran the, the NASA space program to the moon, but Hermann Obert was a major general and his, his mentor and he ran all of NASA, not just the, that unique space program. So, yes, we never had an American space program. We always had a German one. And that was out of yeah. uh, so One of the questions that came up in chat is the fourth right, in fact, I wrote it, is the fourth right still in existence, Chris? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. uh, Absolutely it is. We, uh, we are living the fourth Reich, not the New World Order. And it is, I have so much on Germany. Uh, I studied for three to five years uh, back in the 1990s that uh, uh, I was a near expert on the European theater. I didn't focus on the uh, Pacific theater because the true change, uh, World War II was, uh, was, the, uh, was what has uh, changed life forever. And the, the experiments the Nazis did and the ones that uh, the 100,000 that escaped and then uh, 25 to 50,000 went to Antarctica and into inner earth for the, uh, uh, the youth program. But what they had developed, I mean, I've, I'll be able to get some of it. A lot of it was uh, of just the German files I had was on a, another laptop, which uh, my ex-son-in-law uh, uh, stole, Derek who will eventually disappear when the collapse economy about a week beforehand. But uh, meanwhile, um, uh, I still have still a lot because uh, I have several laptops and I will activate some. But the point is, yes, uh, the Fourth Reich is what we are living right now. And they all know it. Yes. So when, when we hear the new world order, that's really what it is. That's exactly what it is. That is exactly. And Hitler lived... Uh, he was last reported uh, alive was uh, in Montana at uh, Glacier National Park. He lived to a minimum of 107 years old. So, um, well, there's confirmations that he was alive in 1962 for the uh, 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 Genesis Six project. That's for sure. Right. Well, he was also a uh, uh, he was a guest of um, LBJ. He was spotted at a at a county fair or a convention outdoors. And then he was whisked away with a secret service uh, with LBJ and several um, other. Um, uh, the other CW that's on other shows, uh, including yours, um, uh, had told me that uh, uh, Hitler lived in, uh, and she had, she had proof of it with photographs. Um, lived in uh, San Diego in a uh, mountain resort a castle and would travel between San Francisco, between uh, San Diego and San Francisco. But she had photographs that she shared with a woman that was uh, doing investigation on the, on the subject in Germany and sent her the pictures. But then uh, her father destroyed all of her uh, photographs or negatives. So the only existing copies of those photos are in Germany with that person that she had. Uh, about this, 
is when you say the secret service whisked them off. So, you know, when we think that, the, the, you know, Nazi hunters and stuff like that, they've got the TV shows and all these investigators and, you know, the world was hunting for him uh, because, you know, and, and they're the ones protecting him. Exactly. They're the ones hiding him. Correct. You know, it, everything is a mirror, folks. Think mirror on everything. Everything is projection. If they, if you hear the government saying something, you know it's probably the exact opposite. That's what I figured out in 1995. And um, I took the polarized opposite of what we've been taught, and everything has come to come to fruition as far as uh, the truths of life. We've learned less than 1% of the truth. And unfortunately, we're going to be yeah. in the near future. I'd agree with that. And Chris, I, just a, one, one question that was really prominent in the chat uh, is those missing submarines. Do you have any further intel on the submarines that went missing? Because that's quite a number. Yes. Um, I have, I've done a lot of research on their subs. And basically, the XX1 and the XX3, which is uh, 21 and 23 in Roman numerals, uh, those were used to transport uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 250,000 uh, down to Antarctica and also into uh, uh, to uh, um, uh, um, Argentina and Brazil. But the majority went to Antarctica and to the base there, and they had an entire city there. And it was uh, those – well, when you look at the, the photos that I sent with you and, and images and maps – you're going to see an actual 1939 map of going under the ice cap. And that was for the commanders. And it was confirmed in later on, not much later on, uh, a letter surfaced through an extinct volcano in uh, Brazil. And it was one of the crew members uh, sending a letter back to his family that they had made it to inner earth to Asgard and, uh, uh, by submarine. And that's where the, the hundred submarines went to Valhara. And, and so, so they disappeared down to there and, uh, they just say it was a one way journey. Right. But yeah, there was no point uh, in coming back. Uh, what they did is they had gotten, uh, uh, through both Admiral, uh, Donuts, uh, Carl Donuts and Canaris. They had, already uh, information and converted into maps. The Germans were the, they developed the first submarine world war one. The only ones that had submarines were the, were the Germans, not the, not the uh, allies. And um, that the information uh, that they obtained was valid. And I, I'll retrieve some of the other articles and I'll get it to you. But yes, um, those hundred submarines uh, did make it, and they went to Antarctica, and they went beneath the ice caps, and they had Base Two Eleven there, which did not get destroyed, which was uh, what Admiral Byrd was told to do. And then Admiral Byrd, when he came back about, you know, what happened in Operation High Jump, then he was uh, he like Admiral Forrester were both thrown out the Bethesda Hospital window and listed as. Uh, committing suicide. They didn't commit suicide. They were killed. But the family of Admiral Byrd did maintain the majority, if not the whole thing, of his diary. And they have shared a portion of it, which I've copied. 
and it's it's amazing. That's right. Anyway, what and the whole inner earth thing is is very intriguing. I think this is some of the news that's really going to shock the world when we find out that there's a whole world underneath our world and many major major cities and transportation networks and and all kinds of things and and the proofs are coming out and one of the most interesting things in the uh, in the brief that you gave today uh, Chris is the map that you have of inner earth there and uh, and you've got like you've got I, you've got a lot of authentication for everything that you just discussed today uh, in that and it's it's mind blowing what an incredible job well it's I only deal in fact not fiction truth not fantasy the point is I was an analyst and I was in the top one percent of one percent in the in the military and the government unfortunately it's all about exploitation and using unique skill sets and that was you know mine which uh, I worked in both uh, uh, in weaponry development and uh, testing uh, advanced uh, and conventional uh, technology for uh, I was one of the best and I'm not bragging it's just I was that motivated. I thought it was for the right thing. And then in 1995, I realized after selling billions of dollars to the Saudis, the Israelis, uh, Australians, uh, South Africans, Canadians, uh, Great Britain, Western Europe, there had to be a better reason than because weapons do only one thing. They kill. And we that's not what life should be about. But so that's when I called it quits and at, at exited service and um, – went into uh, uh, the federal government. Anyway, um, yes, everything is validated uh, with what I what I work with. And after what this evil government and military has done to me, combined, uh, they've destroyed my health, they've destroyed my family, they destroyed my uh, uh, income, they destroyed my, you know, virtually sanity. But the point is, I will spend the, my last breath exposing every freaking one of them because I know just how easy, how evil they are. And they're all the, the truths of the perpetual lies we've been plagued with since the beginning of time. Anyway. Um, well, and I stand by you in that, Chris, and we're, we're really thankful to have you as part of the, uh, the right on radio team here. And I'm going to, I'm going to make a couple quick announcements, uh, in just a second that you want to stay tuned for, because a part of it is how to find these essays and everything else. Uh, but I just want to do this for, uh, for Chris. Absolutely. Because Chris. A word reading machine, you know, and, uh, and uh, you just uh, to you keep keep going and talking like that for a continuous amount of time. I don't think people, well, uh, many people don't realize how hard it is, and uh, that was really incredible. Uh, Chris, do, do you have how's your time? Do you have time to take one or two calls today, or should we put that off for another day? No, I I only got about halfway through the material. Um, uh, yeah, I could, we yeah, can, we're going to have to continue it next week for sure. That's fine. And I think people, uh, do, do, I'm going to ask the audience, type in, do you want to hear the continuation of this uh, particular brief? I'm suspecting it's going to be a very resounding yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I'm seeing already. 
And, and by the way, Chris, when you were uh, when you were talking about uh, when you're giving the story about the uh, the polar people and stuff like that, it, it is, it, you were paint. It was painting such a great picture in uh, in everyone's mind. And uh, there were comments from Watching Wall and from uh, others just saying, "Wow, I feel like I'm watching a movie in my a movie in my head." Uh, listening to this, but I know there's going to be a couple questions. Uh, so I'm going to turn on the calls in just a second. We're only going to take a couple uh, because I do have a time constraint myself, but I just know that there's so many questions that are coming up with this. And Chris is an absolute encyclopedia. Before I do, uh, just two quick announcements. So we have started the, uh, we have a platform. It's an online platform where we host our courses and stuff like that. It's called Right On You. Dot com. That's right on with the letter U.com. And we've started something that's it's going to help uh, to, you know, give Chris some income and stuff like that. We're going to be pu- putting up way more uh, br- Intel briefs than what you're hearing on on uh, on the, the show, because obviously, you know, he's been doing this for for a couple decades or, or more than a couple decades now. And uh, we're going to start publishing more and more and more. So if you're an Intel digger and look at if you want to support a guy who uh, who served the country, who, who could probably use your help, uh, you know, some of the proceeds, most of the proceeds are going to go to Chris uh, from it. We're going to cover costs, but then, you know, the rest of it is really going to go uh, to Chris. And so uh, you can go to writeonyou.com and you'll see the military analyst and you can just do a one-time payment and you'll have lifetime access as long as we're doing this uh, for $17. Or if you want to give an ongoing support to Chris, uh, you can give a uh, $3 a month. So that does come out to more over a year, but that's just because you want to give more for a year and we make it into payments. So it's it's nice and easy. Uh, It's not a big bump for anyone. It's a price of a coffee these days, it seems. So uh, go to that. Also, uh, look, we're trying to save our country. We're shopping American. We're shopping Canadian. If you are in North America, you want to stop giving your dollars to the cabal, please go to mylibertystand.com and one of your fellow Right On Radio listeners will uh, will talk to you and take you through a virtual tour through the store. It's like a concierge service. That's at mylibertystand.com and I have just enabled phone calls, so I'll take one, we'll take one or two questions for Chris, the military analyst, if you so choose to call in now. Otherwise, we will end the program. We can take calls, Jeff. Yep, yep. I'm just, I'm just waiting to see if someone calls in. We can offer, but they they don't, uh, some people are shy. So we'll just give it a second. If no one they calls in, in or we'll... they can, if they can't call to Canada, they can text in or email you questions. No, no, no. They, they can call through the app. Anyone who's listening right now is is on the app, and they just push a button, and uh, and they call in. So here we've got our first caller. Uh, so you've just got your invite. You'll be able to join us in just a moment. Oh, and Mr. Burns is here. Mr. Burns, welcome back to Right on Radio. Hey Jeff, hey, uh, it's it's a pleasure to uh, speak with you. Um, I will give a little creditation to our speaker. I was in ASA, which is Army Security Agency, as a collections and and uh, analyst person. And when I was in Germany in the mid to late seventies. 
it was very clear that the Fourth Reich was definitely in action. We we all knew about it. We worked with the Germans in the building, so I have to give credibility to to our uh, speaker because it's important that other people talk about it so that it's it's not you know it's not just him saying it. I had a top secret crypto clearance, so I was I had a very high clearance in that in that aspect. Um, basically, working with NSA and uh, monitoring the world, you know that kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, my question is. Um, I saw a lot of the archives of the Cuban Missile Crisis and everything else, but I never saw the archives of the uh, Antarctic stuff. Um, sadly, I wish I had known about it. I would have tried to get a hold of it, but yeah. So kudos. I'd like to. Um, I'd like to get involved, uh, Jeff. I'll be getting involved so I can get the information because I have a kind of a degree in the German World War II side of it. So thank you. You're welcome. Well, uh, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, Mr. Burns, and, and by the way, Mr. Burns, it's funny because you're still kind of doing the same thing, just more on the spiritual side now, it seems. So uh, we thank you for your service as well. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's something that we are called to do by the Lord, and warfare is warfare, no matter if it's physical or spiritual. But I want to remind everyone in the audience that spiritual warfare can kill you just as dead as physical warfare, you know? So we have to, yeah. you know, be careful. Likewise. That's right. Absolutely. We, we do have the authority, but there's uh, there's certain things that we need to have some real cautions in, and you best know you're walking in that authority at the time. Without doubt. You know, that's the biggest thing. You know, it's like when he was describing the men going down the tunnel. It's It's doubt that gets you. It's not, you know, it's fear and doubt of what is to come. And that works both physically and spiritually. Just right. saying, you know. Right. All right. I will uh, let somebody else call in. But thank you for your uh, service. And I hope to get some more information um, about what you were privy to, you know. So, uh, Jeff, is well, we're going to be posting a lot of it on, uh, on right on you there, Mr. Burns. And, uh, and I'll tell you, this particular uh, Intel brief that uh, Chris has put together with all the evidences and the maps and everything else, I'm telling you, it's stunning. Oh, and, yeah, and sorry, Chris, it. I didn't mean to jump on you there. I'll have a second part to this, Mr. Burns, that uh, uh, not just continuation of this, but I have another one. And you'll see uh, photos that I doubt the the North American or European public has ever seen. I have one of the most extensive photographs. You will see uh, evidence that uh, Germany was in Antarctica. I have dozens of, of photos of uh, their expedition there. Well, that's great. Um, you know, I saw photos of the Ark, not the Ark, the um, Noah's Ark uh, from the, you know, the NSA used 
high resolution photography. And we were, we, we used to laugh about it cause we'd pass them around and, you know, and so it's very interesting. I have to give Chris credibility because a lot of this stuff I've seen, you know, and I used to sit in my uh, classes in college where I would tell the instructor, well, you're going to see this in 20 years on the history channel. You know, I used to argue with him. He was a military historian, but he hadn't seen what Chris and I've seen, you know, so, but you have to be in the top echelon, echelon of the, of the intelligence uh, agencies to actually see this stuff, you know? So kudos to you, Chris. Um, That's great to hear. Well, it's, uh, when I do the next episode next Wednesday, um, please tune in and uh, oh, absolutely! And you could ask more questions. Okay. All right, absolutely. Well, thank you guys, thank you, Jeff, and I'll uh, I'll sign up for right on you so I can get all of Chris's information. You really should uh, compile it and publish it before they are able to take all your information. You know what I mean? Because that's what they do. Not only do they kill you, but they take all your information that you have. You know? Absolutely. So That's why I have it on uh, separate. Well, about uh, 7,000 essays, so we're going to work on publishing them, and we've got a hosting platform to do it now as well. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the best that's, thing. Yeah, that's great. Um, Mr. Burns, you're going to see pictures in Antarctica you've never seen before in your life. Well, I, yeah, I haven't seen those. Like I said, I've seen a lot of other stuff, but I haven't, I haven't seen those. So it'll be fun. It will be. Absolutely. All right. Blessings to you, Chris. And I'll be praying for you, for your keeping safe spiritually and physically. You're on my prayer list. So, and Jeff, you know, you're always on my prayer list. So, you know, keep up well, the good much work. Needed and appreciated, Mr. Burns. Much needed I, and appreciated. I in really think right on, right on, right on for that. There you go. I mean, you know, Jeff, Jeff puts himself out there too. And people don't realize how deadly these people can be in the spiritual realm. And when you put yourself out there, it's, it can be, it can be very costly to your health, your family, your finances. They basically go after everything. So they took my entire retirement. I know this. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're good at that. I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, so thank you guys. And I will let somebody else call in. Sounds good. All right. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Burns. Thank you. Thank you for calling. All right. And I'll just give it uh, 10 more seconds. If no one wants to call, we'll call it a show. Uh, but I do thank Mr. Burns for calling in. And uh, it looks like everyone else is uh, is there. But, yeah, watching while the, the prayer covering is absolute. And, uh, and by the way, if you believe in prayer, I invite you to our Sing and Poor Prayer Celebration. It's on our Telegram channels. Uh, just go on to Telegram and search for Right On Radio, and you'll see we have a chat channel, a digs channel, a prayer channel, and a main channel, which has curated news. And uh, every Saturday night on our main channel, because as the uh, highest subscribers and has some features in there, we do ho host every Saturday night a open prayer, and you are invited to join us. And uh, 
bring your requests before the Lord and pray for some other people or just uh, stay quiet and pray along. And by the way, we also invite singers. Uh, if you want to sing and worship the Lord, man, that is welcome because that really breaks down barriers. And uh, so listen, everyone, God bless you and God bless you, Chris. I uh, want to thank you for your... Thing, Excuse me. For yes, sir. Okay. Um, Jeff, I've done a massive amount of decoding over the last 26 years and I've decoded Christ's message and I'm the only one that's figured this out. And I also, with my near-death experience of 3.5 months uh, being comatose, uh, my point is this. I am doing on two other, on several other platforms, uh, I'm going to be doing a special session. I know how to, to basically transition into what is known as a fifth dimensional plane or realm. And the other shows are, are very interested in that. I'm offering that to you as well. Well, thank you. Yeah, let, let me uh, let me look at the uh, the materials. I'm, I'm totally interested. I've gone through ancient documents that most people don't delve into, and uh, it's the answers are in in ancient documents, which really aren't serviceable, but uh, or accessible now. But uh, basically, in the apostles of uh, of uh, John and the uh, also the uh, uh of John. These are, and then the apostles of Peter. But anyway, the point is the answers have always been there and they've been hiding in plain sight. And this is something that the world will know because the times are going to change in the next five and a half months from now. And if people know how to transition as I am able to, to uh, ascend into the fifth dimensional plane, it'll, it'll stun you. And it's, it's, it's doable. This is what Christ never got the message out to the, to the, uh, the public at that time of, uh, of his uh, lifespan. Anyway, go ahead. Well, we do have a new caller, and uh, I'm going to make this the final call, but Sloop Sky has joined the program. Welcome to Right On Radio, Sloop Sky. Go ahead. Your mic is on, Sloop Sky. Can you text him? Uh well, I'm sure he can hear. I can't. I don't know if it's a him or her. Uh, but, yeah, Sloops guy, I don't know if you're using a, a headphone or something, but, you know, uh, we can't hear you. Okay. Well, I'm going to hang up on Sloops guy because that's not working. And uh, thank you for calling in. Sorry if there's a technical difficulty there. Hey, everyone, thanks for listening to Right On Radio. We'll see you again. There, We're going to have a new show on all the platforms uh, on Thursday at 7 p.m. It will be uh, going up live. And, uh, yeah, and uh, this weekend I'm probably going to be on the road. So keep me in prayers. And, uh, yeah, listen, love your God, love your family, love your neighbor and make a difference in your community. Over and out.